Welcome to the AR Bookshelf, a podcast by the Architectural Review. Founded in 1896, the AR has set the international architecture agenda for over 120 years. The AR Bookshelf is very simple. We ask each guest to put books on an imaginary bookshelf and tell us their story. My name's Elena Beaumont, I'm Deputy Editor at the Architectural Review. And joining us for this chapter of the AR Bookshelf is Leslie Locko. Newly Dean of the Spitzer School of Architecture at the City College of New York, Leslie previously established the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg, Africa's first and only postgraduate school of architecture. Born in Scotland, growing up in Ghana and studying architecture at the Bartlett and the University of London, Leslie pursues, among many other things, the subject of race and architecture in the city, publishing White Papers, Black Marks, Race, Space and Architecture in 2000, as well as having a career as a best-selling fiction writer. Leslie has also appeared in the pages of the AR, writing about the damage of Africa's development aid charity paradigm, the remittance economy, the ways protests can shift the axes of power, and most recently about the democracy of shade in the AR's darkness issue in April. We're remitting between London and New York. What is New York like right now? It's kind of suspended between lockdown and also widespread protest, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's kind of hard to say because when you're inside your apartment, you don't really see very much. So I I actually hardly see the city at all. You know, I think Americans exist in a state of distraction a lot. You know, they shop a lot, they go out a lot. You know, it's, it's quite a busy sort of culture. And it's been very strange, I think, for them having literally almost nothing to do. And I think it's partly why these protests and also the killings have galvanized public opinion, because people are not distracted in the, in the way that they normally are. It feels like a poignant moment to talk about books. People have been so generous with information and guidance and reading lists. Perhaps we could start with the book, Everyone Should Read About Racism. I don't think there's one. Um, It's interesting, when the protests um, erupted, I was up very, very early and thinking, you know, about something that I would write to the school community. And I started at about six in the morning and, you know, literally by 10 o'clock, I still hadn't quite found what I wanted to say. So we started something called Floyd's List, which was a sort of resource list um, around questions of race, identity, architecture, etc. And the list is still growing. And for me, it's kind of fallen into about two or three different categories. So one is to do with the, the kind of problematics of race, which is the way most people, I think, speak about it. And my top read for that is Rennie Edelodge's, you know, why I'm no longer talking to white people, but partly because it's about the burden of being the raced person who must explain it to others. And, and I think there's a, there's a way in which race is always thought of as someone else's issue. And it's, it, you know, it's usually the issue for, for black and brown people. Then there are things like, you know, those who write about race creatively. And I would say people like you know, from Toni Morrison to Maya Angelou, the long, long tradition of people who write about race, where race is not at the forefront of the conversation between the writer and the reader, but it's sort of infused in, in almost everything that they do. For me, that those are two actually quite separate categories. 
And it's, you know, my experience in South Africa over the past five years where race is at the forefront of every single thing, I mean, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, was being able to move between the challenges and the complexities of race, but also the speculative and creative possibilities was really important. And I would say that that's probably still true, um, that if if one thinks only of, of race as problematic, and of course it is problematic, but it, but it encompasses more than problems, um, you, you wind up getting a very narrow view of it and a very um, sometimes almost helpless or hopeless view of it. And, and for me, it's never been a hopeless or helpless position. It's been interesting reflecting on it at this moment where you know, America is also quite a can-do place. You know, if there's a problem, let's find the solution. Let's do something. And actually sometimes not doing something, listening, reflecting, whatever it is, you know, that's the strategy. And that's very difficult here. Let's talk more about Floyd's list. Mm. Why is this sharing of written words so important right now, do you think? I think it's partly to do with time, you know, that these issues require reflection they require introspection as well as action and there's something about words and it's a bit like that wonderful essay that I think it was Jeanette Winterston wrote about why art matters and it's about being able to withdraw sufficiently from the world in order to to process and absorb what you're looking at and I would say exactly the same about reading you know particularly now when everything has become so visual and so visceral and, and so immediate having that space to insert yourself and your own experiences, your own life history, your own challenges between the person who's writing and you who are absorbing it, I think is really important. And it stops people from being passive consumers in the way that you are of the visual. And, you know, the act of reading actually forces you to engage in a very different way. And and for me, that's the speed of engagement with reading is really important. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, this idea of passively reading and perhaps more actively reading. How can we make sure that these reading lists and collections of literature are used productively and effectively? It's interesting. I mean, you know, because I have two careers, you know, I guess one is an architect academic and the other is a fiction writer. And the strange thing is that in moments like this, it's the fiction writing um, hat or persona that's the most important and so the ability to to use words not just as a medium of communication or control but also as a medium of imagination for me has been really important particularly in a time like this where the corporate knee-jerk reaction is to is to come out and say you know black lives matter blah 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 for me that's the equivalent of just passively absorbing something you know literally after the sixth or the seventh statement i kind of knew what was coming so I stopped reading them. The words are, are so malleable. It's such a, you know, you, you can be physical with them. You can be emotive with them. They're, they're much more than, than simply words. And in a time like this, I'm, I'm reminded actually of the immense power of words. I wonder if you include architecture practices in this kind of sphere of corporations or businesses issuing statements. What have you made of the responses from practices and the architectural community? I mean, I have to be really honest and say very little. It's to do with both the speed and pressure of change and you know, the, the South African experience was really interesting because I think that the 
schools like the graduates, like the GSA in Johannesburg, wouldn't have happened without the student protests of 2015 and 2016. They were the absolute catalyst for making immediate change. And even then, when the school started with a, 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 an overtly transformative agenda, it took about two or three years for the for the work of the school to start to be confident enough that you could actually see those changes. Um, and, and I think of things like, you know, counter space um, and winning the pavilion. And I know that that would not have happened without that period of three or four years of both working at the school, but also working within it. You know, that's a long time to wait for something really meaningful to change. And I, I think that's the, the, the problem in a sense of schools is that you, you want something to happen immediately you know, I can tell you how long it, ta- it takes to, to make a curriculum change and then how long it takes to produce work that's in response to those changes. It's a long-term project. These moments have presented us with something that's been in the making for probably 20, 25 years. And I remember when I first was at the Bartlett as a student in whatever it was, you know, late 80s, early 90s, doing work that was about race and architecture, it was such an oddity. You know, the, the conversation 30 years ago was that these subjects have nothing to do with architecture. Mm. And, if, and if you come at them, it's at a kind of niche, you know, really extreme marginal. Um, and it's not to say it, it can't be done. It just wasn't seen as anything worth talking about more broadly. And over the past 25 years, you've sort of seen that slowly begin to shift. And my impression was, well, it was there all along. What was it that was so difficult to, to understand? And I suspect that this is now a moment a bit like that, that what we will see from schools of architecture is not going to be visible now. It's probably going to be visible in about three, four, five years time, if particularly schools take up the challenge authentically. If mm. they don't, and it simply becomes, you know, another excuse for for making statements, you know, yes, we have, you know, five more black staff or, you know, six more black students or whatever it is. I don't think that that will produce what what we're what we're looking for so i think it's a it's a massive shift and one of the interesting things about you know the floyd protest is that for the first time i think people are genuinely and generally beginning to understand that things are connected so one dot here links up another dot there that links up with another one and so it's no no longer a niche or extra it's actually intrinsic to the way architecture, the built environment, you know, those intersections with things like race, class, power, etc. They're, they're, they're fundamental. They're not, they're not peripheral at all. I'm interested in where this discourse can happen outside schools as well, and also the role of magazines like the AR, where this change can happen mm. more quickly, I think, yeah. than in yeah. schools. What are the roles of magazines, do you think, in changing this discourse? Well, I think one of the things that, let's say, specifically magazines do is that they produce cultural capital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for so long, I think when we think about capital, we think about financial capital and we think about reward in that sense. But I think that cultural capital in the end, it's it's a bit like the thing that has influence but not power. And in the end, influence is longer lasting. And I think that that's an arena in which, you know, by singling out voices that magazines, journals, the kind of discourse industry signal as important, they begin to shift much faster what people read and understand as being of now, of the moment, of importance. So again, I think it's not just about representation, like having higher numbers. It's also about being really specific about what you represent. 
Mm-hmm. And in, in a way, a magazine can, can put two really contradictory or opposing views side by side and offer that contradiction to readers in a way that it's very difficult to do, you know, in, in the built environment, for example. I mean, physically, mm-hmm. that, that understanding of, of discourse being, you know, as powerful and, and as lasting as physical built objects is really, mm-hmm. really important. And And I know just over the past four or five years, contributing fairly regularly, to, you know, even to, to AR, to architectural records, to whatever it is, just just being given that space and and allowing my voice or views to be heard in a, in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be has been really, it was really important in South Africa because in that bubble, it's a bit like an echo chamber. Everybody in that space is just talking to each other by talking outside of that bubble and kind of reflecting back in. It also gave me a, a platform which I wouldn't otherwise have had. So I think they're hugely important. For, well, magazines like the AR who have been going for a very long time, we have a very problematic history. You know, we have a history of sending white male writers around the world on their kind of mm-hmm. round tours um, and then mm-hmm. coming back and then speaking about these faraway places. Places, yeah. Um, and I'm supposing what way can architecture and the way of thinking about architecture inform how we address these kinds of these histories and these legacies? There's something about the way we think about race, class, gender, that we're always looking for an, for an answer to it. I think we don't accept that the, that the formulating of the questions is as much part of an answer as any end goal. In a sense, there is no end goal. It is always going to be a kind of work in progress. And I think that ties in fairly well with architecture as a, as a conceptually, because architecture is always looking, it's always propositional. It's always looking for something that's never here. It, you understand that you're working towards or you're working through something. And I think that approach will benefit many of these other cultural practices that, that also have to work through I think also platforms do have a role in Mm, kind of continuing mm. this education. And I think as architects are constantly learning and they don't Mm. stop learning. And that's why a lot of architects also teach, I think, Mm -hmm. um, to to continue this education. And you've obviously been involved in architectural education for a while now um, Mm. in lots of different places. Perhaps we can move on to the book you would give to an architecture student. Well, Mutations for me was a really interesting book. I mean, I think it's probably about 20 years old now. And it was partly um, as as an object. You know, I think it was the first book I'd seen with a vinyl cover and it had this thing that looked like a mouse mat on it. And I was kind of intrigued by it. It had this combination of kind of catchiness, sort of sound bites, um, particularly in the beginning of it. And then lots and lots of work on projects that visually didn't make a huge amount of sense. But they were sort of intriguing. And I think it was a collaboration between the, the the team that Cool has put put together and Bruce Mao, I think, the graphic designer. And it was the first book of its kind that I'd seen. But when I'd gotten over the kind of visual pleasure of sort of going through this, there's so much buried in it that even 20 years after I first picked it up, I'm reading things that make sense now that that didn't make sense 20 years ago which for me is always a great test of something and the fact that it's not written by a single author also meant that it could could hold many many kind of different perspectives and many different geographies in the same Mm. space 
you know, people critique um, Kuhas endlessly for for being glib or superficial or, or whatever it is. But but what I really enjoyed about it particularly was that it gave me something that triggered. It was like a catalyst. And I, for me, it, was, it, it remains one of the most interesting, maybe not the most important texts, mm. but certainly one of the most interesting. What did you read as an architecture student? Do you know, the, the, the interesting thing was that there was very little for me as an architecture student that made sense with the world that I had come from. So I kept on hearing of the word culture. I remember this in my first and second year at the Bartlett and, you know, they'd ask us to, you know, to look at Nolly maps or, or Bannister Fletcher. I mean, I remember looking at Bannister Fletcher and there was no Africa on the, <laughs> on the tree and thinking, okay, this is, this clearly isn't speaking to me, but I, I also couldn't, I didn't understand the word culture enough to understand that culture is also made. And the most significant thing that happened was somewhere in my second year, I went to David Dunster and I said to him, listen, I'd be really interested in doing something about race. And David said to me, well, you know, that's going to take you about 10 minutes. Then what are you going to do? And he was sort of joking. <laughs> and I was so sort of taken aback. And then he gave me a copy of Third Text. And it was an epiphany. And I realized that, you know, in art, in music, in cultural theory, all of those questions that I had or was having about race, about identity, about belonging, about diaspora. Thousands of other people were having it. I mean, that was a discourse. And, you know, third text is it's somewhere between a journal and a magazine. And for me, that was the most significant thing I read in the whole five years that I was there. And it was interesting that it came outside of architecture. It, it wasn't ostensibly to do with architecture, but mm. it was about third world perspectives on art and, and literature. You mentioned Bannister Fletcher, and I wonder how far architecture student reading lists have come how much do reading lists need to change in architecture schools and what are some of the kind of mistakes and problems that are made it's interesting listening to students talking now in 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 the states especially black students who've been coming you know to me through email through whatsapp through conversations or whatever the thing that they're most angry about is history mm. and um you know, history and theory courses are being singled out for particular blame. For them, one of the fundamental ways to learn about something else is to learn about it through history. And, you know, I had the great good fortune to have been taught history in a very, very, or history and theory in a very, very different way. So rather than understand it chronologically or in a linear fashion, which, which I guess even subliminally makes you think of history as a kind of a progress race. Mm. And so if we're only ever going to talk about Africa in, I don't know, 2000 BC or whatever it is you know we're not talking about it now so it's been left behind mm. but we were taught history in a very different way which was sort of thematically so you know you take something like I don't know 1759 and what did it mean in, in various locations and so you were able to understand history as a process that moves at different speeds in different places and that these things are connected and you know when I read the new education I I was so blown away by how how easy it was to understand why curricula are set up the way they are and, and a bit like history it's not fixed it didn't roll off the mountain with Moses you know the, the, there's a reason why things are set up and I, in some senses I, I say I wish I hadn't read that simply because it just it made me angry 
And it made me angry that if we know this about curriculum and we know this about the way we teach, there's no excuse for not being able to change it. Contrary to what I say here, I think it's something, it's a book that everybody should read. And that, you know, things can be made anew. You know, mm. there are no, <laughs> I don't know what the word is. It's not that there's no canon, but, you know, canon is not biblical. It, it didn't arrive, you know, we made it. I think part of the resistance to including different kinds of canon or different challenges to it is that, you know, it, it's to do with insecurity. If, if, if what I think I know is found to be wanting, what am I going to replace it with? Nothing um, is more vicious than than the academic under attack. And that's that's hard to swallow. You know, you think of it as being the place where you're the most open, the most questioning, the most generous in your understanding, actually. Nine and a half times out of ten, it's the opposite. What's the impact of these shortcomings, do you think, in architectural education on wider profession and built production? This thing that happens in these formative educational years, what does that grow into? Well, I think what I'm seeing now is it grows into to, to two kind of camps. One is a, a camp of extreme um, lack of self-confidence, a lack of confidence in one's voice. And I mean, I could say this about students of colour almost everywhere in the world. There, there's a kind of hesitancy that's underpinned by enormous anger. And that's one issue. And then the second issue is that there's a kind of, it's like a secret shame. And the, the best way I can describe this is, is, again, to go back to South Africa, where you know, as a profession, if you scratch the surface of architecture too much, you would come to the realization that apartheid couldn't have happened without the complicity of the architectural profession. Somebody designed the township house. Somebody, you know, maybe at the planning level, decided it was an okay thing to segregate space. You know, our disciplines were complicit. So if you prod architecture too much, you, you come to this sense of shame. And for most people, particularly, I'd say, people over the age of 40, that shame is also tied up in the way they studied. You know, if, if, if you scratch this too much, you're, you're going to come at what it is that I think I know. But for the, for the youth, the, there's only anger and a kind of insecurity that's born out of a lack of self-confidence. And those two states, are, they, 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 they're kind of nihilistic. They're, they're very destructive spaces to be in. And I think what the school there tried to do was to say, okay, here we have this kind of history and this legacy and this tradition, and here we have this energy and this frustration. How does the school somehow now become the bridge between those two so that we don't pretend as if nothing happened, but at the same time, we recognize that we have to be fairly forceful about what we put in its place and that we have to be fairly experimental about it because we don't actually know. And for me, that was the perfect role for the school in a sense. It was to be the space where you could explain what had happened and why, but you could also speculate on what could happen and, and you could explore that. And I, I think from in my, in my mind, that's the model of a school. And there are some schools that are like that. You know, I think particularly of the, the, the really strong British schools where if the school is a confident place, it can absorb it can absorb challenge. It, it can deal with things that come at it that are outside of its canon. If it's an insecure place, forget it, because that insecurity breeds this kind of defensiveness that 
it's really, really tough to crack. We've spoken a lot about reading. Mm. So perhaps now we can talk about writing a little mm. bit. You edited White Papers, Black Marks in 2000. And then three years after this, you published your first novel. Mm. So what was the book that changed your mind about fiction? There were two things I read way, way, way before this. Um, the first was July's People by Nadine Gordimer, a South African writer. And I read it, I think, when I was in boarding school, so I must have been about 17. The first line in July's People is the servant in the house, the black servant, saying to the master and mistress of the house, and the master was actually an architect in the novel, you like to have some cup of tea. And it was the first time I'd ever seen African-accented English in print. And I remember reading it and thinking, oh, my, that's the first time I've ever seen the kind of sonic memory of speech where I grew up in print. So I thought, wow, a, a novel can, can talk about what I know. It wasn't a novel that was talking about the problems of Africa or the problems of post it, 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 it wasn't a problematic, it was just a novel. So for me, that was a real epiphany where you th I thought, okay, novels can do anything. It, it can talk about anything. And I started reading Gordimer almost obsessively. And when I got to architecture school, I would often go back to her texts as inspiration for design projects. And I was too naive to understand exactly what it is that I was looking for. But in retrospect, I, I think I was looking for the same sense of confidence that as a writer, you could be confident enough with your material to make it bend to what you wanted it to say. It didn't have to follow a particular structure. And Gordima writes without punctuation marks. And it's just part of her style. So she's actually very, very difficult to read. It's difficult to know if someone's speaking or thinking. Mm. So you you have to immerse yourself in in structurally in the way that she writes in order to understand it. And then you begin to realize it doesn't really matter whether someone's speaking or, or thinking. And, you know, White Papers, I started it when I was still a student. I started it in 94. And what it did was put me in touch with a bunch of people around the world who were still talking about, or at that time, trying to talk about similar things. And many of them I'm still in touch with. And what was interesting is that many of us, most of us, left architecture and left academia you know even after it was published because I think back then 20-25 years ago it was almost impossible to find the space in architecture to articulate those things so people went off into art practice I went off into novel writing you know people did other things and now 25 years later many of us are back in the academy in quite different roles and, and writing for me just remains it, it, it's the same as drawing, you know, it's the same as building, it's the same thing. Um, mm. And I don't think of there being a huge difference between my novels and, and you know, my, my teaching. Um, most people sort of say, oh, you know, you were an architect and then you became a writer. But for me, it was the same thing. Mm. It just happened that the novel was a different way of, of saying the same story. And I mean, most people think, you know, even my readers, most people think that my books are about sex and shopping, which to a certain extent they are. <laughs> but, but they're also about other things. But, you know, I never speak about those other things. I think, you know, people firmly think they're about sex and shopping. What do you think fiction can perhaps say that nonfiction can't? Is there something about it that allows you to explore ideas in a certain way that nonfiction yeah. doesn't? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think fiction allows you to articulate what is possible and nonfiction allows you to explore what's, what's here. I mean, I, I don't think that those are 
completely fixed categories. But there's something about the form of fiction that's much more elastic. And you can break and bend and twist rules in fiction in a way that's much, much harder to do in nonfiction. And particularly in academic writing, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, people like Jane Rendell, you know, that they've really pushed the, the envelope of, of how it's possible to write academically. I'm actually involved now in a project sort of revisiting Jennifer Bloomer, which, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, that was in a complete epiphany to me again, that, you know, you could write about those kinds of subjects or that, that subject matter in this way. So I think fiction and nonfiction have this very interesting push and pull relationship because one sort of pushes the other and the other kind of resists. And then the other, you know, it's, it's a very, for me, it's a very interesting binary. Um, and, and, you know, unlike most binary oppositions, one is not always fixed or dominant. You know, they, they shift position. They, they do influence each other. Do architects read enough fiction? Probably not, actually. You know, I have many, many, many close academic friends who, you know, are quite clear about saying they do not read fiction. And I think to myself that whatever I've learned about the world, I don't know, 80, 90 percent of it came through fiction. You know, it's for me, it's not an escape from the world in any sense. I mean, I think that I think it's Gordimer who says amazingly well that nothing I ever write will be truer than my fiction it's for me fiction is fiction is truth in a very particular way it's particularly prescient right now I think like the idea of truth is now so contested yeah. like it's yeah. not like truth is truth non-fiction isn't necessarily true it's at, we're now at a point where but that line is now so blurred and how do you actually is there more truth in something that is a that is a kind of fictional future. Absolutely, um, yeah. You're so right, and I think what's what's interesting is, um, like, I use this analogy with students a lot. You know, a, a doctor generally practices on the body of patients. You know, they you're you're training you you're training on the thing that you're eventually going to do. And lawyers, you know, they train with rhetoric and speech and writing. And architects don't build buildings, you know, they build drawings, they build representations of buildings, or they, they write texts. And so the the thing that you work on is this kind of intermediary. And rather than see the intermediary as a substitute for the real thing, actually the intermediary, whether it's a text or a drawing or whatever it is, is that's our skill. That That's where we have to become skilled. And I think there's been this fear in, in architecture that if you opened it up to fiction, what you would get is very bad writing. And, you know, sometimes that's true. And I guess that's the risk that, you know, nine and a half times out of 10, it probably is going to be fairly rubbish. But you hold out for that one time where it's really like it changes the way you think about writing. We are beginning to see that there are multiple truths and there's multiple layers to truth. I think the ability to step outside the category, to step outside the kind of convention is more valuable than ever because it also gives you the, a glimpse of a, a new kind of paradigm. But that's also risky, because before you get there, there'll be a lot of bad work to go through. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you just have to plough through it. But I yeah. guess it's also part of this idea of even the idea of a category and blurring like mm. these things. Actually, it's not just about these 
about the categories of writing. It's it's about categories in general, blurring these boundaries. It's all part of this move towards, I think, a really positive move towards, you know, things aren't easily categorised. In the US, it's you're either happy or you're you're sad. You know, the, the, the very very fixed categories and black and white and rich and poor and Republican and Democrat. It's a very very binary society, which is partly to do with the pressure of so much difference. You know, mm. when when things are fluid and you 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 have to, you you should be able to accept nuance and subtlety because it's impossible to be categorized categorical actually the opposite happens you become more categorical because it's safer mm. and i think we're now entering a kind of time where categorization doesn't work we don't yet 100% know what to replace it with but we're in this period of intense exploration which um you know what are the truths i, I actually I, I i can tell you what i think are not truths Mm. I have an instinct for what is is not true, but do I have an instinct yet for what is true? I'm not sure. Mm. It's still somehow in the process of becoming. This links really nicely, actually, to the book you wish you'd written. So, Remembering Babylon is a really interesting book. Um, and it's about uh, a young English boy, a young white child, who is an orphan in Australia in the 19th century gets washed up um, after a shipwreck and he's taken in by an Aboriginal community, lives with them for, I think, something like 15 years, enough to know their language, and then stumbles across a white Scottish settlement. And it's his appearance in this settlement that sets the kind of cat amongst the pigeons. But what's interesting about the character is he's neither one thing nor the other. So he's this sort of strange hybrid that disrupts a number of different communities. So he's an orphan, he's a stowaway, so he disrupts the idea of family life. He's shipwrecked, he lands up in this Aboriginal community, they understand him as white, but hes they're not sure if he's dead or alive. He lives there for 15 years and they take him in, but they don't really have anything to do with him. So he can never have a woman, he can never eat with them. It's a kind of strange ostracization or whatever you call it. And then he comes back into this community who recognize him as something that they should know because he's obviously white. But they think of him as this conduit that's going to bring the Aboriginals in to to slaughter them. So just his appearance sets everything on edge. And for me, it was a very interesting novel about the the thing that you can't place. And in in some ways, it's exactly what we're talking about now, that there was no category for him. Um, And so the world at that time just could not accommodate him. And I think increasingly more more and more of us are, are that. You know, you, we speak more than one language, we come from more than one place, we inhabit more than one identity, but the kind of overarching structures still require us to declare, I am this, I am that, I am female, I am, whatever it is. And you can sense this kind of pushback because that's not reflective of contemporary times. You wrote in your response to this question that this book had enormous resonance for you growing up in between cultures. Mm. Uh, Ghanaian and British I realized hybrids are everywhere you contributed to our periphery issue Mm. in May 2019 the subject of your outrage was about protests in South African universities Uh, and I'm afraid I'm going to quote you again Mm. Um, by bringing the protest from the edges to the heart of power the students were able to shift the entrenched axes of democracy 
And this feels like a really important reality to reflect on right now. Why is protesting on the streets such a powerful spatial tool, bringing conversations from the outside, from the periphery, to kind of the the centre, the Mm. epicentre of the city? Well, there's a couple of things. Like in both places, both South Africa and and the United States, the um, police presence is is really important. And the police, they're they're partly militarised in both contexts. So there's a a very strong sense of the the force of both forces. Britain has a slightly different relationship to the police. And here, it's it's been interesting that the police have been the target because the, mm. the protests have also been about the structures that are in place that keep order, supposedly law and order. So here, when you talk about law and order, the word serve is in there, but it's very, very dilute. You know, this is this is about might. And, and you see it even in the way that the, the police look. Mm. And I would say this the same in South Africa. And these scenes of thousands of people occupying the streets, you know, in a way that you never see in, in let's say, in peace times or when people are not protesting, you recognize actually how thin the line between revolt and order is. There's a sense in both places that if that line is breached, it'll go pear-shaped in, in a moment. I, I never sense that in the UK. There, mm. There's some other relationship between, let's say, law and order and authority that's that's very differently crafted. So I was driving, coming back in an Uber, I think, on two or three days ago, and driving down Fifth Avenue and then down Madison, and all these, the shops are boarded up. I mean, the, the boarders must have come in literally within two or three hours and boarded up all the luxury shops. And a lot of them now have signs on them, you know, Black Lives Matter. They've been spray painted. But my sister was telling me that, you know, half the time it's the shopkeepers paying somebody to spray it in the hope that their shops won't be attacked. You know, again, the the kind of protest and protection become subverted. And I think there's something here, you know, I was on a march last week, which is very performative. You know, people are performing protest, but the sheer numbers and the inability to understand actually who is protesting. It's old, it's young, it's black, it's white, it's it's people of color, it's different Alliances. This I've never seen here before. It's it's somehow absorbed everything, and I think that's the thing that's that's making this so different. Is that previously things were very very clear. It's this protesting against that. Now it's a kind of general um, a, a general sense that something's not right, and I think the authorities very very difficult to know how how to respond to it. Yeah. You know, it's um, there's very much a sense at the moment that nobody really knows what's happening. And I think COVID exacerbated that. Mm. So I, for me, the, the, the two things, the protest and COVID are really linked. And there's a sense like, God, where is this going to go next? On that note, um, <laughs> I've, got some, I've, got, <laughs> I've got some very quick fire questions now. Just mm-hmm. to, So I'd like to ask you the book whose cover you would have on your wall. The funny thing at the moment is all of my books are in storage. So I did some um, digging online. The book covers for me are a really interesting area because my publishers and I fought literally 
over every single one of my book covers for all of my fiction books. And I hated them all. (laughs) (laughs) What would the, I'm really intrigued, give me an insight into the conversations you'd have about your book covers. Well, certainly in the UK, they're very driven by um, your demographic who's reading you. And so all of my book covers featured a beach, a girl in a sarong and a pink sunset, irrespective of whether (laughs) there was a beach, a pink sunset or a sarong. So that used to drive me mad. (laughs) Um, What was the last book you read? Um, it's, I'm actually still reading it and I'm, I read a number of books simultaneously. So it's American Dirt, which it sort of takes place in, in Mexico and it's to kind of do with the, the, the Mexican American experience. And I picked it up at the airport. So at the moment I'm sort of restricted to the seven or eight books that I've picked up the last time I was in an airport, which is now about four months ago, um, because all of my <laughs> books are in storage. <laughs> and the next book you'll read? So I got the overstory. Again, I picked it up in an airport and I've read about two or three chapters and it's an amazing book. Very, very dense. And it's sort of about ecology and landscape and history and personal narratives. And it's it's I think it's, I don't know, 60 or 70 sort of short chapters. So that I'm when I stop thinking about how to turn this school around, that's what I'm going to be reading. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And the book no one can ever know you've read. It's not really a book, but I read Hello Magazine every week. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely love it. <laughs> you you learn a lot about different places through things like Hello. Um, and I've t- taken to reading it online now because um, you can't get it here. But I love it. It's um, it's the exact pitch of trash and obsequious. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, and just to finish off, um, I mean, we've spoken about so many books, but if you could only save five books from the bonfire, what would they be? Sure, that'd be quite easy, actually. Um, it would be A Sport of Nature by Gordimer, uh, July's People, uh, Tony Morrison, probably Sula or Song of Solomon, something by David Malouf, um, if not remembering Babylon, then The Great World. And th- these are the books that I just reread and reread endlessly. I think that's already five, but only yeah. by three authors, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> which is a bit, bit poor show. And maybe something like, like Lace, you know, Sundowners, my first novel, was really self-consciously structured on it, partly because I just thought it was such an interesting structure to talk about so many different things, yeah. So, yeah, those would be my five. I, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would take a non-fiction book no architecture one, sadly. It's the time yeah. for it's the time for stories. Yeah, yeah. That thing of being able to pick up a book, however many centimeters the book is, it's small. But you open the page, and your your universe is is almost infinite. It's an amazing space. Thank you for listening. Please head to architectural-review.com for Leslie Locko's full bibliography and to read some of her recent brilliant writing for the AR. The AR depends on its subscribers to bring you fearless storytelling, independent critical voices and thought-provoking projects from around the world. Consider supporting the AR with a subscription today. Visit architectural-review.com forward slash subscriptions to find out more. Students receive 30% off.